if you would, uh, just bow with me in prayer. And uh, as always, we're going to go to the Lord and ask for his help before we turn to the revelation of his word. So let's do that. Our Father, we thank you for the chance that we have had this morning to gather together as your people um, to sing especially about your holiness this morning. Uh, Lord, you don't need to be reminded about that. We do. We remind ourselves of who you are, that your holiness means your purity, and even more than that, your otherness. You are not a slightly better version than us. You are God most high. We are your creation. We are learning about your holiness. And Lord, we recognize too that your holiness is really the backdrop of all that we find in the scriptures, even today's message, that though there is a day of judgment coming, uh, it is your holiness that allows that to be just and to vindicate it. Um, and it is in your holiness that you would send your son to take our place on a cross so that sin would be purged in him and that we could be freed and take shelter by faith in his death on our behalf. And it is your holiness that will restore everything to be good and peaceful and right, the shalom that we long for. So we rejoice in your holiness, God, and we recognize it as a fundamental aspect of your character. Uh, may that guide us as we look to this text this morning and talk about the coming day of the Lord. Guide us as we study your word by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. About 10 years ago, um, actually, if you would turn your Bibles to Matthew 24, sorry, we're in Matthew 24, uh, starting at verse 36. About 10 years ago, uh, when Amy and I lived over in Hamilton Acres across town, uh, we woke one night to uh, kind of a scary sound. And uh, it was the sound of our garage door being opened and then quickly closed. And this was in the middle of the night. We were dead asleep. It woke us up from a dead sleep. And our master bedroom was right over the garage where the garage door opener is hanging. And so you know how that goes when those things turn on. They send out a sound and a vibration, especially if you're in a mediocre house and located directly above it. And so we felt it, and we heard it. It got our attention, and we both sat up and kind of looking around like, what is going on here? And, and then it occurred to me, I think I know what this is. Um, the night before, or earlier, uh, before going to bed, I had left my motorcycle jacket. This was back in the day when I was still riding my motorcycle. Just, can I get a little sympathy here? I know. We'll get back to it, but... In a few years. Anyways, I had put my motorcycle jacket out on the chair, an overstuffed chair, and I had set my helmet up on the arm of that chair just to get ready to go the next day. And I had in my chest pocket uh, a fob, you know, with a little button on it to open the garage door so that when I rolled in on my motorcycle, I could just tap my chest easily and the garage door would open and I would roll right in. So I'm sitting there, you know, just kind of dazed in bed trying to figure out how the garage door opened and closed like that, and I thought, I, I think I know what happened. I can imagine, for some reason, the helmet having fallen off the arm onto the chest, maybe hitting the button, and then it magically closing. I don't know, but, you know, that was the best I could come up with at the moment. So I walk out to the living room, and I look at the chair, 
And there's my helmet on the arm and my jacket just as they were. So I, I, I can't make sense of this. What's going on here? And, and then I hear this sort of whisper scream from down the hallway. And Amy says, there's somebody in our car. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So I run back to the bedroom and we both go to the window and look out onto the street. And no kidding, there is a person in a black hood inside our car looting around for things and having hit the overhead, you know, the, the, the garage door opener on the visor as they're looking around our car. So we're kind of staring at this. I look over at Amy. She's putting on war paint and racking the shotgun, you know. <laughs> Not really. But she would. So don't. If you come to our house in the night to take something, you're going to have to deal with Amy. <laughs> no, we, we grab the phone. Uh, we call 911. And, uh, you know, the dispatcher says, what's your emergency? And and I kind of find myself saying the unbelievable words. Somebody is trying to break in, or somebody's in our car right now. They've broken in. And as I'm on the phone, this person moves from the car and heads to the house. So a figure in a black hood is walking towards our house, and they move to the side of the house. I can still see them. And they grab a screwdriver or some kind of a pry bar, and they start prying away at the window in our house. So I'm on the second floor looking down, watching them do this. <laughs> and uh, I'm telling the, the dispatcher, they're trying to break into our house right now. They're prying the window open. And she says, can you see them? I said, yeah, I'm watching them right now. They're, you know, they're right here. And I'm, you know, kind of torn between, I don't want to give up that I know that they're there. I'd kind of like to see this person get caught, you know. And uh, anyways, they said, well, we'll roll the police your way. Okay, thanks. That'd be great. So you're kind of sitting there like, I wonder how far they're going to get before somebody gets here. And, uh, you know, it was just one of those moments where you can't believe you're seeing what you're seeing and saying what you're saying. You know, the reality is that a thief came to our house at night and tried to break in. And it's one of these situations where you kind of try to prepare yourself for. You typically lock everything up, although somehow we didn't get the car that night. But you lock everything up, and then all of a sudden, your readiness gets tested, right? Now, I'm going to pause right here. First service, I didn't finish the story. And I got a lot of people mad at me. So I'll finish it for you guys, because you're a scarier group. I'm going to make sure I finish my story. What it turned out to be, it was unfortunately, it was a woman down the road who was mentally ill, she was living in a van out in the front of their, her caretaker's house, and she would get up at night and go on these little night adventures. And uh, she would get into people's car. I think she was drawn by blinking lights and different things. I think it was the blinking light on the dash that took her to our car. When she hit the garage door opener, it turned the light on in the garage. She went to there. But the scarier thing was not her or who it turned out to be. The scarier thing was that she had a bag of goodies that she had taken from other cars up and down the road. That was scary to see what your neighbors have in their car and what you're living in, in and amongst. So anyways, that's the end of the story. <laughs> but this is the imagery, sort of, that Jesus uses to describe the coming day of the Lord. A thief who comes at night. And that is the metaphor that he grabs to, to portray his sudden and surreal Arrival that is coming when he comes again. 
And uh, I think, unfortunately, this imagery has really produced a lot of fear in many Christians. And too many bad, scary movies have been made and book series and whatnot. And the, the intent here of Jesus giving us this message, again, is not to produce fear. It is to produce readiness. Readiness. And that is the main point of our passage this morning, that not knowing the exact time of Christ's return and this day of the Lord, which refers not to a precise moment, but to sort of a season of end times things, day of the Lord, uh, that this is rather to produce uh, readiness in each generation. Each generation needs to make itself ready. Let's look at verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So first thing, fairly obvious point here, the precise timing of the Lord's return is unknown. It's unknown. It's certainly unknown to mankind, and I would say this is not just an inconvenience that we don't know. It's not an oversight on God's part. It's, it's not a lack of understanding on mankind's part. The reality is we are not meant to know the exact day or timing of the Lord's return. It does seem to me that in the scriptures we're meant to have a sense of the season and of the times in general, but not the moment, if that makes sense. But the application to this, very simply, is don't waste your time listening to doomsday prognosticators who are sketching out calendar dates and all of these kinds of things. Uh, don't waste your time. I would say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but as soon as you hear the day announced, dismiss it. <laughs> They've just guaranteed it won't be that day, right? Because nobody knows. Nobody knows. I'll give you a couple examples of this. Uh, 2012, you might remember that was kind of a scary um, season for a lot of people because the Mayan calendar predicted the end of the world on December 21st. Do you remember that? And the world watched with suspicion as the date, of course, came and went. And five years later, here we are. And that's happened before. Uh, I remember myself uh, as a kid growing up in Southern California. This one's very vivid for me. Uh, there was this uh, kind of a scary story about a cult known as Heaven's Gate. Remember that? In uh, 1997, where 30 or 39 members of this cult in San Diego, so this hits really close to home because it was really close to home, uh, 39 folks committed mass suicide uh, as, as the hell bot comet was coming because they thought the day of the Lord, I don't know if they thought Jesus was riding the comet or what. But they all dressed in these uh, like sports suits with the same white sneakers. And I remember seeing pictures as a kid of uh, really a room full of dead people because they thought that was the way to prepare for the Lord's return on a comet. Recently, a man by the name of Harold Camping predicted the apocalypse May 21st, 2011. So he missed it. Uh, and he actually, in his nonprofit organization, spent millions of dollars promoting a speculated rapture date um, of May 21st. 
and um, had actually convinced thousands, and some people actually quit their jobs prior to the event. And then three days after the predicted date came and went, uh, he apologized, uh, uh, citing a mathematical error, and then recast the date as October 21st, 2011, which also came and went. Altogether, Harold Camping has falsely predicted the Lord's rapture uh, six times. So, uh, to his credit, if I can say that, he has at least apologized and humbled himself saying that his, his uh, times of speculating are over. Thank you. Right? That's what I have to say. Thank you. Uh, I would say again, not only is it unknown, it's purposefully unknown. There are some things that God has purposely shrouded in mystery for our good. Uh, as I posed the question last week, if we knew the precise moment of the Lord's return, how ugly would our discipleship be? I think it would be not pretty. Uh, I like Flannery O'Connor's words. She has said that um, mystery is the great embarrassment to the modern mind. We don't like to have things that baffle us or things for which we can't find an answer. And I think we really live in a day and age in a culture that is driven by a quest for knowledge and I think with knowledge control. Because if we, especially with uh, sort of an, an overemphasis on scientific knowledge as being the only metric of truth, I think that's a real problem in our culture and I'm not trying to diss science, but when we commit ourselves only to that as the only means by which truth can be known, well, we end up with a bit of a God complex, I think, which is if I can sort of break down this phenomenon to predictable elements and I can reproduce these results and I can sort of get all of this knowledge and all of this predictability and therefore all of this control then I can live in a closed system where I don't have a need for God because I'm God, the omniscient one. And I think that's a bit of a temptation for our, our culture these days. Again, quite frankly, there are some things that God has shrouded in mystery and that's good. Uh, and one of them is the precise timing of the Lord's return. Uh, I think there's this really helpful illustration here, this reference to Noah's flood, where there was this event that God had foretold, he had warned Noah about. There was a specific time in mind. Mankind was just going on with the normal events of life. Life is usual. Eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, just moving on with life as it is. In other words, just as the flood of God's judgment interrupted the ordinary activities of Noah and his contemporaries, so Christ's return will interrupt the normal activities of everyday life. That's just how it's going to be. And so again, I, I want you just to draw your attention to how thoroughly hidden the knowledge of this precise time is. It is hidden from mankind. It is hidden from angels. It is hidden from the Son himself. We're told here that only the Father knows. Uh, if you're like me, when you see this comment here that uh, it is unknown to Jesus, even the Son of Man doesn't know, as he states here, this prompts a question within me, and because me, I, because I have the question, you all get to hear me you know, deal with it a little bit, whether it was your question or not. Um, but that is, does this in any way diminish the deity of Christ? If there's something he doesn't know. I think that's a reasonable question. And if it doesn't diminish his deity, then why not? Okay. 
What we understand here is, and I've written a lot of this down carefully because whenever we're talking about the incarnation and some of these things, we need to be precise. But Jesus, in his incarnate state, possesses all the attributes of deity and humanity simultaneously. Okay? But while possessing the attributes and the prerogatives of deity, he doesn't always access or draw upon them. So I'm going to illustrate that this way. I want you to think about a compassionate dad in a foot race with one of his kids. Okay, dad can win. Let's just say, let's just say dad can win. But he throttles back, right? And he runs even or even a little behind his kid just, just to push them a little bit and lets them win. Uh, not in our house. I don't let them win ever. I always <laughs> run full out. I don't care. I figure there's going to be a day when I can't, so I'm going to win every time while I can. They can get over it. It's, we're preparing them for a, a difficult world, right? <laughs> so just keep the picture of a compassionate dad in your mind, not so much what happens in our house. No mercy. Uh, but again, what, what God does here, what God the Son does is he voluntarily lays aside the independent use of his divine attributes and prerogatives. He doesn't lay aside the attributes or the prerogatives. He lays aside the independent use of them. And so that while he always possesses them, he doesn't always access them or access them for his personal benefit. While possessing all of the divine attributes at all times, he only lays hold of some at the expressed will of the Father. Does that make sense? Please say yes. Let me try a little more here, just in case. He does not exercise his omnipotence except to further the kingdom of God at the Father's will. He does not exercise his omniscience except to further the kingdom of God at the Father's will. Uh, one fellow by the name of R.H. Gundry summed it up really well here when he says, What Jesus could have done because he was divine did not predetermine what he did do also as a man. The incarnation did not destroy divine potencies, but it did limit actualities. I think that's pretty good. All in all, what we're meant to see here early on is that the uncertain timing of the Lord's return, and actually that's not great language because it's certain, the unknown timing to us of the Lord's return is a wise concealment of a gracious God. Let's look at verses 40 and 41. Two men will be left in the field, or excuse me, two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Now, what we are meant to see in these passages here, the focal point is on the suddenness uh, of the event and the surreal nature of it. Just as I described sort of my feelings when a thief is actually in my car or trying to get into my home. It's, it's kind of amazing to suddenly see it upon you. Uh, and also the other thing that we're meant to see here is just that there is a separating of people. These are the focal points of the imagery that's being used here as a thief coming in the night. Sudden, surreal, and a separation. And so the point is this. Some, not all, will be taken. Some, not all, will be taken. Now I've got to pause here. Uh, we're going to talk about this word taken and try to understand what is in view here. And I'll tell you at, at the outset, I'm going to ruffle some of your feathers. I'm going to provoke you a little bit here. That's okay. Um, there's, this word taken here, I think, is kind of scary for people 
sounds like some kind of divine abduction. Uh, there's been, even been a movie out from Hollywood la- uh, lately, and I think the title is taken about some kind of abduction. I haven't seen it, but the advertisements look scary. Uh, so when we read something like this, taken, taken where? Taken by whom? Taken to what? It's scary. It's a little unnerving here. So what does it refer to? Now, some have taken this, I shouldn't use that word, some have interpreted this uh, in reference to the rapture. That this is a time where Jesus comes to take those who belong to him because of their faith and he takes them to himself to spare them from some elements of the tribulation. Uh, and I'll say that this, that's possible. It's not actually my view here. And I got a, a lot of folks that I've, I studied this past week um, I, I was going to say that agree with me, but in reality, I agree with them. They've got more weight than I do for sure. Um, I would just say this. If it refers to a rapture and a taking up here, then it, it seems to be at least Jesus' first mention of it, and it's not thoroughly unpacked, and it's a little bit disjointed where it would be placed. So I'll just say that. Um, so I'm going to teach my own personal view here, which uh, is that I don't think taken refers to the rapture here. I think it's obvious that Jesus is not trying to map out a uh, a detailed sequence of events uh, in this part of the message. Rather, what he's trying to show are the broad sweeping implications of a period of time known as the day of the Lord. That's what he's trying to do. And he's trying to produce in people a readiness for that. Um, So I think actually what taken is referring to here is it means that one is taken in judgment. Now, I don't mean some kind of divine abduction where people are quickly taken and thrown out to judgment, but just overall that they're taken by or almost overtaken. And I think uh, this is in reference, this is to be paralleled to the illustration of the flood example that he gives. Just as there was not a readiness universally for this flood coming and judgment came and they were taken by it, in the same way, there will be those who are not ready for the Lord's return, two of them in the field, two of them at the mill, and some will be taken. They won't be ready. They'll be left exposed. And actually, most of the scholars that I studied this week uh, have, feel that this is the view, including D.A. Carson, Craig Blomberg, Carl Laney, Louis Barbieri, John Walford, and even the folks who produced the study notes for the ESV. That is, I think, the point that, is, uh, that Jesus is getting at here, that those who did not prepare for God's coming judgment, and just as they didn't do that in, in Noah's day, in the same way, uh, those who have not prepared for God's future coming judgment will be taken, taken by it, overtaken, so to speak. It will be an unknowing, unexpected, and sudden event for which some are not ready. So I think that's what we're to to understand here. I will, again, just reiterate, both views are possible. It could be referring to a rapture. uh, And those who hold to that view believe that uh, the passage basically goes back uh, to refer to what Jesus has said earlier about um, uh, the Lord basically drawing people to him himself, the elect from the four winds. Uh, But that goes further back in the text. Those who think it's a taken in judgment would recognize that it seems to be a parallel with the illustration of Noah. Uh, Usually when we get a situation where the context can give us two different options, then we look to the word to see, well, does the word give us any details here? And and there again, the word does not. It's paralambanatai. It it basically means to take to oneself or to take alongside. But that can be 
Again, taken in acceptance, or it can be taken by way of arrest and taken into custody. We see both. So even the word itself doesn't help us. Now, I want to say this. Most of you have glazed over. Got that? Uh, On one level, assigning the significance of the word here, taken and left, is just a little bit academic. In one sense, it doesn't matter. Because the thrust of the teaching here is to alert us, there will be a separation of people. When the Lord comes, some will be ready and some will not. That's what's indisputable, that the day of the Lord will result in a separating of mankind, some to judgment and some to safe refuge. And so we are given this information not to quibble over details, but rather so that each generation will live in readiness or what I would like to call gospel readiness. If we're ready for the Lord's return, we will be shielded from this judgment. And that brings us to the third point here. What is clear is that there will be a sudden gathering of some. Some will be preserved. Some will be exposed to God's judgment, just as it was with the flood. And as it was with the flood, it is our state of readiness that either shields us or leaves us exposed. Uh, And again, I think the illustration of Noah and the ark is helpful because Noah and his family had to take refuge from God's coming judgment for sin. They had to take refuge in the ark of safety. And in the same way, Jesus, we could say, is a greater ark of our era, right? We have to take refuge from God's coming judgment for sin in the ark of Christ, in the safe refuge of Christ. So that God's coming judgment, which will be poured out on the earth, and by the way, we want that. Because we don't want sin and evil to persist. Just like cancer in the body, you don't want to have it. So you'll take the radiation or whatever to put it down. So God's judgment is a purging of evil and sin from the world to restore it to its rightful place. We want that. That's good. But we need to be shielded from that coming judgment in Christ Jesus, the ark of our refuge. So that the wrath of God is poured out not on us, but on him. Our sin placed in him and crucified at the cross. And that is what is uh, at stake here. I had a conversation with Daniel Schubert this last week that was really uh, encouraging, I think, for both of us. And he reminded me of a way of thinking about the gospel that I think would be helpful here. And that is this. We can think about the gospel in sort of three movements. Number one, that we are saved from God. We are saved by God. And we are saved for God. And I kind of like this because what it helps us to see again is that this is a God-centered thing. First of all, it starts with he, he is a righteous and a holy God. His judgment is coming to wipe out sin. So we need to be saved from God, from his coming wrath. And he makes provision for us in his son, Jesus Christ. And says, here is a a refuge for you. Through faith, through repentance, and through faith, we, we appropriate that offering to us and salvation is available to us. God's wrath is poured out on Christ and not upon us. So we are saved from God, by God, and then finally for God. Too often, this is a bit of a self-centered thing for us. We think, yeah, I want salvation because I want to go to heaven. So this is really all about me. But in reality, we are God's creation. We are his. We're his possession, his children. He longs for us to be reunited with him. 
It is God-centered through and through. Uh, we are being saved from God, by God, for God. And I really like that. But again, overall, the main thrust of this passage is not to produce in us fear or to result in scary movies or dramatic book series or to turn us into doomsday prognosticators or any of these kinds of things. The point of Jesus telling us these things is to produce in us a gospel readiness. A gospel readiness. So that's our third point here. How is it that we live in gospel readiness? Let's look in verse 42. Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of a house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, uh, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware of. Boy, here's some tough words too. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How is it that we live in gospel readiness? Now, I'm going to take a page out of Jesus' teaching style here, which is probably a good thing, I hope. Uh, last week, as we looked at uh, the beginning of the Olivet Discourse, and he was answering the disciples' question, when will the destruction of the temple come, and what will be the sign of the ends of the age? He actually starts off by telling him what the signs won't be. Remember that? In the first eight verses, he kind of says, well, this will happen, and this will happen, and this will happen. That's not really the signs. And then he gets on with what are. Uh, so I'm going to do, do something similar this morning in, in terms of answering this question. How is it that we live in gospel readiness? Here's four ways to do it wrong, okay? Four ways to do it wrong, and I've brought some visual aids to help me here. Um, this is the first one, uh, watching fearfully, <laughs> also known as the scaredy cat, okay? Put some pictures in your head. The Lord's coming back. How should we watch? How should we wait? How should we be ready? Terrified. This is the wrong way to do it. This is reading the newspaper or the news in whatever way you get it, not probably by paper, but online or whatever, and seeing all kinds of events around the world. Oh, someone just got put into power in this place, possible antichrist, put him on the list. You know? Uh, the scaredy cat. The second wrong way, uh, this one's my favorite. I like this one. <laughs> this is bunker cat. This is the person, <laughs> I'm sorry, this, you guys aren't laughing nearly hard enough. This one really made, did you notice what's going on here? Maybe it hits too close to home for you, I don't know. How many generators do you have in your house, right? This is, this is the cat, and I don't get the thinking that says, man, the Lord's coming back, this is going to be rough. By golly, I'm ready. I've got munitions, right? I got MREs, I got a bunker, I got generator, I got fuel, I even got camo, don't know why, you know. <laughs> the government, who clearly is going to be in league with the Antichrist, starts overwhelming us and they roll tanks. I've got stores of 22 ammunition. <laughs> I, I don't get the end game here. What are you trying to do? If the Lord's coming back, be gospel ready 
you're good to go. Quit buying up all the 22 ammo. Some of us like to shoot for target practice, you know. How many pastors are saying that in churches around the country right now? All right, so the four wrong ways. The scaredy cat, the bunker cat. This is the third one here. This is the fat cat. This has got it. I hope this is photoshopped. A fat cat is, this is the hedonist who says, hey, the world's coming to an end. The Lord's coming back. Guess what? We better enjoy it while we're here, right? Whatever you got, eat it because it's all going to burn. <laughs> the fourth wrong way to be ready uh, is not going to be readily available at first, but it's uh, apathy, otherwise known as every cat I've ever met in my life, <laughs> right? I do not care about you or anything. Just give me my food. Get out of my way. I will say that no cats were harmed in the creation of these portrayals. <laughs> All right, if this is how we do it wrong, how do we do it right? Uh, we are to keep watch. And again, I don't think this is a watchfulness that's looking with the calendar, circling dates and looking for hidden puzzles in the text and all of this. Don't be crazy, people. It's living in guarded fashion. It's aware of the seasons that we're in. It's looking at the Olivet Discourse and recognizing that there are chunks of time. There are epochs. There are seasons. And yes, we're progressing along the way. And we're meant to see that. We're meant to know that. That's why Jesus told us that. But not in a knucklehead sort of way. Okay? So we're to be watchful. Uh, But I think secondly here, we need to make sure that our own heart is prepared to meet the Lord. Have you responded to the gospel? Are you, are you practicing gospel readiness? So you can't just know the tenets of the gospel. You have to have accessed them and appropriated them for your life. You have to have come to the Father and said, I know that I'm a sinner. I repent of that. I want to take refuge from your coming judgment in your given Son, Jesus Christ. And I lay hold of that through faith and receiving the free gift of salvation through Jesus, who died in your place as a substitute for your sin, that the wrath of God would fall on him and not on you. Take refuge in the gospel. And don't persist in a vulnerable way. Protect yourself with God's ark of provision, which is Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, be faithful stewards. And this point didn't show up on your notes. We got cut here, so you might have to write every word. I know that'll be rough. Be faithful stewards of the relationships entrusted to us. We're given this parable at the end about who is a wise and faithful servant. And and we see that they care for those entrusted to them and what has been entrusted to them so that they are giving proper care and feeding of, of those around them. And I would ask you the same question. If you have a knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation has been given to you by faith and by the grace of God, are you using it to practice the proper care and feeding of those around you? So are you gospel ready in your own heart and are you gospel ready in your relationships with those around you? Are you an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ to prepare people for the sudden coming of the day of the Lord? This is how we are to be ready. And I want to close by just reading a passage from 2 Peter, which I just, I don't know, for whatever reason it really articulates my own feelings and God's encouragement to those who feel as I do. This is 2 Peter 3, 9 through 15. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, 
but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And that is beautiful. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every opportunity to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. A new heaven, a new earth, where righteousness dwells. That's a good thing. And if you have appropriated the gospel in your life, you're ready. Uh, may you be a good ambassador for those around you who need to be ready. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that uh, there are some things you want us to know and there are some things you have clearly hidden from our sight and understanding. The gospel makes us ready for the known and the unknown. May we truly be at peace with you because the gospel has been applied to us. And may we be your ambassadors for those who need it. We thank you for the revelation you have given and we thank you for the revelation you have disclosed. For you are a good and gracious God. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.